I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us worship the Lord with gladness. the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt. A word of God incarnate, a wisdom from on high, O truth unchanged, unchanging, O light of our dark sky. 
We praise thee for thy radiance, that from the hallowed page a lantern to our footsteps goes on from age to age. In Christ's name we pray. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, sanctuary as well as those worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because we have gathered in God's name, that means our word of welcome is one that is completely unqualified. All are welcome in Christ's house, and all are welcome here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship pad. You'll find that on the inside edge of your pew. If you will sign your name, send it down and back again. We'll have the advantage of each other's name. And the last person to handle it, tear off the page and leave it on the top for the ushers. It makes their lives easier. They will love you forever for it. We'd also like to ask, invite everyone to a time of fellowship in Old Buttonwood Hall, just out this door to my right and down a short ramp. There you will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, you will find the opportunity for us to gather together in our common life together. Speaking of our common life together, I have a few announcements for the good of the church, which I'd like to highlight just now from the back of your hymn insert. You will see that we have an adult Christian education series starting after worship today. That's in the McCall Room, uh, which is on the second floor above Old Buttonwood Hall. And the series is Practicing Unity When Things Fall Apart. If you've ever wondered what the names on each side of the pulpit have to do with each other, come up to the McCall Room at 1230 and Ken Ross will tell you what they have to do with one another. We anticipate that'll be about a 45-minute lecture with a little bit of Q&A afterward. And grab a cookie and come up around 1230 and we'll get started on our, our lecture series. Next week will be me on a slightly different theme, so we, I will look forward to sharing my thoughts around that theme with you as well. Next week is also an opportunity for singing with the choir. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be surrounded by the glorious voices of our choir, this is your opportunity to come up here and sing with them. But Andrew does need to hear with you so he can plan ahead. So you can either tell him after church or you can email him at the email address you see in your bulletin. I'd also like to note that we like to take into consideration the schedules of our prospective members when we schedule our new members classes. So whether you have worshiped with us a long time or a short time or anywhere in between, if you feel called to join First Presbyterian Church, just send me a note so that I can include you in the scheduling process for that as well. Finally, speaking of schedules, I want to let you know that our annual meeting date has been set. It is a couple weeks later than usual this year. It will be March the 5th. And as has been our recent practice, that will take place here in the sanctuary between our two services of worship. So that will take place at 10 o'clock on that day. I've, I've been asked what happens if the meeting runs long. If the meeting runs long, we meet until we're done, and then we'll have our 11 o'clock service of worship. But we plan to be together on that day to have our annual meeting of the congregation. With all of these things noted and a few other things in the announcements for you to peruse at your leisure, let us continue our worship now with our confession of sin. Remember that our Lord can sympathize with us in our weakness, 
since in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us with boldness approach the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us confess our sins against God and neighbor. Let us pray together and then in silence. O Lord God, you are the source of our life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Too often we boast not in you, but in ourselves and our feeble attempts to live unto ourselves. We have not loved mercy. We have not walked humbly. We have substituted what we think is right for the path of blessedness you have laid out before us. Forgive us and call us again to live into Christ and witness by our actions not to human wisdom, but instead to work as you show us it can be through Christ our Lord. With the coming of Christ, God has given us the gift of forgiveness, even 70 times 7. God reaches out to offer us new life, a new day, a chance to begin again, loved and beautiful, even as on the first day of creation. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
first lesson comes from the prophet Micah, reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The second lesson comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, reading from the first chapter. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Our final reading of scripture comes to us from Matthew's version of the gospel, the fifth chapter, the first 12 verses. This is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever heard about the Sermon on the Mount and wondered what it is, it's Matthew 5 through 7. These are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Listen now for the word of the Lord to us this day. <clears throat> when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.
tells us explicitly that the reign of God is not defined by the wisdom of the world as we know it. Jesus is even more explicit in Matthew's Gospel. This is how God's people are blessed. Not some other way, there's no easy button to push, but in a way that God defines based on what God says is good. But before we get to either of them, Micah has already laid out a path for faithful living under God's reign that sounds remarkably generous and open-handed, open-ended, even inviting, unless you keep reading the rest of the chapter. If we want an easy path, an easy way, our texts for today are not the places to look for it. They all seem to be saying that God's way in the world runs counter to much of what the world values. God's reign in the world is counter to a world in which we run roughshod over the poor because we perceive they are of little significance. God's reign in the world is counter to a world where we meet the unfair advantage with a wink and a nod. God's reign is counter to a world that is controlled by and preserved by the strong for the strong. God's reign is counter to a world where mercy is withheld, where purity of mind and heart are mocked by crass commercialism, where we act as though the humanity of the other doesn't matter. God's reign is counter to a world where war is the norm and peace seems like a pipe dream. And then just when it seemed that living in the world God's way couldn't get any harder, Jesus adds this. God's way is counter to a world that persecutes anyone who dares to engage the world on God's terms blessing the peacemakers, the pure, the merciful, and the righteous. Moreover, in the world as we have ordered it, anyone who sets out to follow the living God and really follow, not in a superficial go to church every once in a while, give a pittance of our goods, pray only in desperation, and then not for our enemies but only for our friends sort of way, but in a deep and costly and disciplined way that person can expect to be persecuted. Jesus says if you follow him, persecution will follow you. That's sort of the opposite of with a cherry on top. Discipleship, as it's defined today, seems to be the opposite of an easy faith which is not exactly the most compelling elevator speech for Christian, Christian discipleship, is it? Perhaps that's why the wisdom of the world, the easier way, is so tempting in the face of what life serves up sometimes, so attractive at the crossroads of our 
pre-pandemic past to which we cannot return, and an unknown future wherein we can only trust in God's good purposes for us. Faith in Christ invites us to embark on a path which realistically and logically ought to intimidate us. Not because it is harmful or physically dangerous, but because it is so very, very counter to what the world values and what the world calls wise. We might even be tempted to reply, well, Jesus, that's great, but some of us have to live in the real world. But what Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount turns such a glib, brush-off stale. Jesus begins his sermon with these Beatitudes, often quoted, I'm not sure often understood, and in so doing, he lays out the expectation for a Christian life. I wonder sometimes if in our modern context that it's clear to us that there are expectations incumbent upon us. Ours is frequently a guilt-free, responsibility-free culture, or at least so it seems. Look no further than the fanciful ways that politicians and business people and athletes and celebrities are capable of issuing apologies that appear on closer examination to be little more than an artful dodge, or worse, by claiming the role of the victim when they are absolutely not the victim. It seems that the answer to transgression is not nearly as often confession and forgiveness as we might hope it be, but instead rather a long patience to wait for the next big story to bump yours off the headline off the front page. And maybe there really is nothing new under the sun. I, I've studied enough American history to remember that no generation has a monopoly on moral failure. But it does seem at times like perhaps we've let our standards slip a little. Jesus envisions a different world. In the world that Jesus envisions, there is grace for our transgressions. And in the world that Jesus envisions, a new life is given to us, a new life that is marked out as blessed, but blessed in the ways that God counts blessing. None of this, by the way, is a forced march. It is an invitation. God is not sitting there holding our souls hostage to coerce good behavior out of us. No, God is calling us forth into a way of life that will give us wholeness, not only for ourselves, but for the world in which we live. And lest we claim that we have been the victim of some elaborate bait and switch, Jesus is quite up front with what he expects of his disciples, and this is where he tells us. 
Just as Moses, the first bringer of the law, came down from Mount Sinai with a covenant from God to create a new world, here in this moment, so does Jesus come down from the mountain. This mountaintop moment in Matthew is where Jesus takes the law, which is God's gift to the people, and reestablishes it within the context of a new covenant. It is a new covenant for a new heaven and a new earth. And perhaps it feels to us a bit aspirational. Who can achieve such things? Well, it is holy to be sure this way of living that Jesus preaches. A life lived such a way would surely set one apart from the rest of the world, which is what God has always called for God's people to do, to be set apart, to show a good way, to show a way of wholeness and life. It is intended to bring about this beloved community in which what God dreams of becomes our reality. Listen. Listen to them slowly. Sometime this week, turn to Matthew 5 and read them again for yourself and linger over them and ask what these words say to you in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No, it's not easy. And we might just protest, that's fine, Jesus but some of us have to live in the real world. There's just one problem with this response, and it's this. The real world's wisdom, if we want to call it that, locks us into a world that values above all else success and youth and vitality, fiscal rewards and physical prowess. And what about when those things fail? What then? Because the real world's wisdom teaches us to rely on our brains or our muscles or our charm and wit to take comfort in our portfolio or our family relationships and to believe 
that we are blessed by these things. But Paul tells us that the cross of Jesus Christ renders such wisdom foolish. Is it easy to live counter to such wisdom, to live out a life, mark out a life motivated by such different values? No, it probably isn't. Actually, it definitely isn't. I am, however, struck by something Henry Nouwen wrote many years ago. If you're not familiar with Henry Nouwen, he was a marvelous theologian, top of his field, taught at Yale, and decided that his calling lay elsewhere. So he moved to a residential community for developmentally disabled adults and lived out his days caring for those who needed his care. Nouwen wrote this. Christians are only Christians when they unceasingly ask critical questions of the society in which they live and continuously stress the necessity of conversion, not only of the individual, but also of the world. Christians are only Christians when they refuse to allow themselves or anyone else to settle into a comfortable rest. They remain dissatisfied with the status quo and they believe that they have an essential role to play in the realization of the new world to come, even if they cannot say how that world will come about. Christians are only Christians when they keep saying to everyone they meet that the good news of the kingdom has to be proclaimed to the whole world and witnessed to all the nations. And now and then concludes, they believe that there will never be a moment in this life in which they can rest in the supposition that there is nothing left to do. But they will not despair when they do not see the result they wanted to see. For in the midst of all their work, they keep hearing the word of the one sitting on the throne, see, I am making all creation new. No. The life of blessedness is not easy, even with such assurances. But it is made easier by our life together, by the fact of our presence with one another, a presence that we live out in the assurance of God's powerful love given to us in the new covenant. I know why the wisdom of the world appears to be so alluring, or at least I suspect I do. It asks nothing of us except what we can achieve by ourselves. It requires no transformation of our lives except what we can do alone. And therefore, by definition, it is a solitary life wherein we rely on no one but ourselves and God remains safely distant somewhere off in the universe, not paying too much attention to our failures and certainly claiming no authorship of our successes. Our lives are our own, beholden to none and without responsibility for anyone but ourselves. It is the sort of life where we can boast in ourselves. It is also what Paul warns us against. And while such wisdom 
may appear to be benign. Pursuing a way of life measured by the wisdom of the world and lauding the attributes required to live such a life tempts us away from the hidden blessings of God's counterway. In particular, they keep us from being the human beings God created us to be and living the lives given to us by God to live together. We who pray every week, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not set out to live as the villains in our own story. We want to be delivered from the shallowness of the world's wisdom. But how? I am reminded of Patrick Stewart's character, Sterling, in the 1995 film, Jeffrey, who said, evil bores me. It's just one note. It doesn't sing. The wisdom of the world tries to keep playing that one note. The primacy of the self and the elevation of the individual at all costs, even if the cost is the destruction of community. And I will grant that most of the time it probably doesn't feel like evil, but it certainly isn't good. You cannot make melody with just one note. The life that God wants us to have is a life that invites us, in Howard Thurman's words, to make music in the heart. And if Micah's prophecy, Paul's letter, and Jesus' beatitudes are any clue, God has been trying to deliver us from evil, from the boredom of the world's wisdom, from a life without music in the heart, for a long, long time. God's melody begins with these notes. Peace, justice, mercy, righteousness. The notes that when sung together, bless the whole world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
we worship, we confess what it is that we believe. And we confess it not alone, but in community. So that when we are weak in faith, others may uphold us. So let us say together what it is that the church believes. I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. We offer our individual gifts, our time, our skills, our abilities, and our financial resources to God. And those gifts become the church's gifts, and then the church offers them to the world. So with generous hearts, let us offer our gifts to the world. You may bring your offering to the plates in the front of the sanctuary, or place them in the plates in the narthex, or give your gifts online.
seated. Let us pray together. Lord God, you are the one who listens to us more deeply than we can imagine or understand. So hear us as we pray. Hear our gratitude. Thank you for the breath of life, the spirit you breathed into us at creation and at our births. Thank you for surrounding us with the fullness of the earth's garden, the seas, the stars, palm trees and evergreens, apple trees and mighty oaks, lions and foxes and tiny ladybugs. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but giving us companions, neighbors, people to walk through life with, families, friends, even strangers, people to learn from, to care for, to love. Thank you for giving us good work to do, for strong minds and hearts and hands to create, to transform, to build, to teach, to grow, to inspire others. Thank you for the gift of music, of beauty in song and in silence, for art, for the natural world, for human community. Remind us to begin every morning in gratitude and enter every night with thanksgiving for the day. Hear our cries. We cry for those who are killed and wounded by the violence of guns and of war. Hear our cries for those lost in California, Asian dancers in Monterey Park, farm workers in Half Moon Bay, and for Tyree Nichols, who senselessly lost his life in Memphis. And for the hundreds of thousands, Russian and Ukrainian, who have been killed in war in Ukraine. May all these not be just statistics to us, but neighbors. Neighbors tragically killed in violence that we too somehow are part of. May the tears on our faces become the waters of justice. We cry for the immigrants of the world, those who wait endangered at the Mexican border or are returned to the dangers of their homelands or bust to places where there is no home prepared for them. 
for those who crowd into small boats or swim the roiling waters from Africa to Europe, hoping for sanctuary and sometimes finding death. For those who have left dear homes and families in Ukraine to seek safety in other nations and who fear they may never return home. We cry for the homeless in our own city who live crouched in storefronts or on subway grates or sleep on cardboard boxes. And especially we cry for the homeless children of the world who live without the protection of family or the promise of a better future. And we remember, too, the wild creatures that we have made homeless by covering their habitat with asphalt and development and destroying the woods and the waters that they count on as home. Hear our intercessions. Bless the poor. Bless the peacemakers. Bless those today who are hungry and thirsty for food and water as well as righteousness. Bless those who show mercy to others. Bless those who are gentle, quiet, unassuming in their meekness. Bless the pure in heart, especially the children. Bless those who mourn, especially the families of those who died this past week in California. And today, bless and comfort Tyree Nichols' parents. Bless those in this church community who mourn the loss of beloved ones in their families. Bless those who are persecuted for their faith, their race, their political views, their sexuality, their ideas. Bless those who are unjustly imprisoned. Bless the newborn, the aging, and the dying, and bless the plant and animal life on this earth that we are losing to extinction. As we ask you to bless all these that you have created and loved, we know that ours are the hands and feet that carry your blessing to them. And finally, we ask you to hear our hope, dear God, even if it is sometimes only a whisper. Hear our hope for the church, your body on earth, and for the ministry of this congregation. Hear our hope for the flowering of joy, compassion, justice, and transformation in our own lives and in the life of this beloved world. Hear our hope that you can truly heal all brokenness and make all things new. And renew our strength.
so that we may mount up with wings like eagles, so that we may run and not be weary, so that we may walk and not faint. All these prayers we ask in the name of the one who came to save the world, even Jesus Christ, praying together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
my charge to you this week is to revisit these blessings, to read them and let them speak to your life. If you do not have a Bible at home, take one out of the pew rack in front of you. I promise you they, I promise you they are accomplishing nothing sitting there closed all week. So take a Bible and go back to Matthew 5 and reread these blessings and see where they speak to your life. And it may be that they will seem very difficult. If it seems that way to you, you're in great company. That's basically what the disciples said back to Jesus. And Jesus answered them, not by putting the responsibility of achieving this back on them, but reminding them that it is God who accomplishes all these blessings. And so it will be for us as well. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.